Hey everyone, it's Heather. I know you're here to listen to the podcast, but did you know I also offer all kinds of online consulting services? Stuff like webinars, book studies, curriculum training and consultation, and even companion activities for podcast episodes to use for staff development. If you're interested, you can check out my website at www.thatearlychildhoodnerd.com or you can email me at heather at thatearlychildhoodnerd.com. Thanks for listening. Grab your highlighters. Can't find them? They're probably right there in your pocket protector. It's time for that Early Childhood Nerd Podcast. Let's get nerdy. Here's Heather. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of That Early Childhood Nerd. Heather Burnt Santi, uh, that's me, and also today Liz, Liz Nolasco and Richard Cohn. Hi. There Hi. they are. Um, when you watch the video of this, you'll you'll notice how beautiful they both are. But uh, for <laughs> now, you'll just have to notice the beauty of their brains and listen. Um, okay, so we are going to talk about professionalism and all kinds of other isms, uh-huh. and um, and uh, so I'm just going to jump right in to the quote. And then we can get going. So this is from an article called Deconstructing Professionalism in Early Childhood Education, Resisting the Regulatory Gaze, mm-hmm. which I love. Um, we're pulling the quote from this, but not discussing the whole article because I haven't finished it yet and I didn't send it to you guys. But um, So it's by Jane Osgood. And uh, what we're going to start with is um, advocates of the professionalism agenda believe that professionalization could lead to a strengthened position and increased respect for those who work in early childhood, but concerns abound that a process of professionalization could be used as a means of control and provide increased domination to those in power. What? No way. Yeah. (laughs) Gatekeeping at its finest. Um, So what do you think? How, how, how's it, how's it bad? How, what are we talking about with professionalism? So yeah, that's where I wanted to jump off. What, what, how, are, how are we defining professionalism? Yeah. Are we yeah. talking degrees? Are we talking, I mean, I assume it's degrees, but- Yeah, I think, um, I mean, I that. was thinking of two things when I suggested it as a topic and said it's something I'd been wanting to talk about. One is the degree requirements um, that that we're seeing more of and, you know, asterisks. I'm a, Richard and I are both college <laughs> instructors, so we're not anti-degree. I'll just say that right away. But there's things to be discussed about about that part but also just like um dress codes and expectations of um the way the way people define professional behavior um those kinds of things so go for it liz (laughs) come us off all right well you said that's where you wanted to kick off so kick it yeah you can add to that definition if you'd like to but so it, it's interesting the I'm sorry, the dress code is actually where I'm kind of stuck because it's been so ingrained in me that no. Anyway, <laughs> that just feels like such a tangent that it feels to me so unrelated to professionalism, but also right. that you said it, I can it is absolutely enforced yes. in you know mainstream public schooling and also lots of early childhood programs. Mm-hmm. 
it's, and you yeah. may know that Heather Burnt Santi has a lot to say about that. Subject. That's true. Yes. Right. <laughs> yes, I do. Yeah. Yes. And have written about if anyone wants to go back Indeed. and look. Yeah. Tattoos and piercings. Are they in line with developmentally appropriate practice? Spoiler alert. Change no. magazine. <laughs> <laughs> Keep going, Liz. <clears throat> oh, and I, I, so I almost feel like there are two separate paths here, right? Of like mm-hmm. a perfect world and also the world we live in. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> in a perfect world where everyone has equitable and affordable access to higher education, I do think early childhood educators should be well-educated should have a broad academic background. Mm -hmm. And in the world we live in where higher education is inaccessible to so many people for a broad variety of reasons, and our workforce in particular generally does not have access to it. I think it's unreasonable and contributing to structural harm Mm -hmm. to build up these degree requirements without providing the without providing equitable access to them. Yeah. Will you, will you talk more about the contributions to structural harm? Yes, please. That's, that's intriguing. I just, I mean, in a workforce, oh God, I wish I had the percentages. I don't, but we are by and large women of color Mm -hmm. who, and broadly living at or below the poverty line. Mm -hmm. Right. And many of us have children. It's, really hard to go back to school for a career that you've been doing for the last 10, 20 years, because all of a sudden now you're not qualified to do the job you've been doing. Mm -hmm. Um, And again, I I did that. (laughs) I was going to say you have intimate knowledge of that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I I guess. So in terms of the degree expectations, of course, I think, um, that the people working with young children need to have information and knowledge and practice um, with the needs, the development, um, what's really important to learn or to focus on in those, in those years that we've got them. Um, I don't know that I'm willing to say a degree guarantees that. Uh, (laughs) uh, I, I think especially when um, we're pretty lax about the kind of degrees sometimes, like some states have a lot of allowances. But when I was a center director, I don't know if this is still true, but there were all kinds of alternate pathways for NACI accreditation. Um, I, I have nothing against elementary education degrees for, for teaching in elementary schools, but I don't think that degree should qualify for early childhood. Um, you know, so I, I just, I think it's over degrees should be required for elementary school, but go on. Exactly. Yes. And elementary school should include more development, honestly. And, um, you know, I've, and I've done both of those degrees too. So, (laughs) um, but I, I just feel like we're, that piece is relying too much on, um, like most regulation or, or oversight it's, um, it's what's easiest to measure. So we're going to say, if you have this piece of paper, boom, you're qualified and boom, we're professional. And, and I don't know that that works that straight like that. So if you got to measure it, how would you be assessing your future? Oh, you know, I don't know that. <laughs> In the world where Heather is the queen of You know, honestly, I think, um, I think there's a lot more promise in in 
sort of apprenticeships, um, those kinds of processes. Um, but again, that goes back to the funding of our field, of our profession, of our, of our places of work, wherever we're doing this, because who can afford to have a mentor teacher in every classroom to do both the work and the apprenticeship. But I think that sort of is, is more in line with um, how adults learn than uh, lectures. And, and of course, it depends on how you're teaching those college classes. Heather, you and I are, as you mentioned earlier, we teach community college. <clears throat> and I have for seven, eight years, I, I lost count. <laughs> Um, and we're slightly post-pandemic, so I have no sense of time. Right. There's no meaning anymore. Yes. Um, but, you know, what I have come to, to ponder and to get clear on in these last seven, eight years is that community college, I love it. It's the best place ever. Me too. Mm -hmm. And it straddles the line between... Um, Discord and rhyme. <laughs> sorry, that's Duran Duran lyrics. What she said. Um, <laughs> It's appropriate that you said, I'm sorry, though. I want to acknowledge that. Yeah, thank you. Um, you're welcome. Um, oh, man. Now you straddles the line. Community college. Well, yeah, it straddles the line between uh, an associate's degree, straddles the line between um, uh, a degree of education uh, and um, a mastery of, of, of content knowledge and uh, vocation tech schools, mm -hmm. training schools, um, trade schools that are designed to uh, help tradespeople um, acquire this, the hands-on skills they need. And um, I mean, in other words, for me, the community colleges I've taught at straddle both of those, offer both of those. And the early childhood program is somewhere in the muddy middle. Um, and in my years there, I, I've come to believe, I've come to embrace the trade school side of community college for early childhood education over the piling on of information mm -hmm. as the best way to prepare young, often young, underserved women of color, like Liz just said, for working in this incredibly low paying field that is hemorrhaging um, new candidates and attracting new people, mm -hmm. hemorrhaging staff and, and unable to attract new people into the field. Mm -hmm. This topic is very raw for me right now, because just two days ago, three days ago, um, I, I live in Connecticut and a Connecticut early childhood faculty just uh, got an email saying from the Connecticut Office of Early Childhood, um, congratulations, we're going to be paying your NAEYC higher accreditation fees now at the state level. Um, and isn't that going to be great? You can take that out of your budgets. And as we move forward with our grand plan for Connecticut, lead teachers will all be required to have bachelor's degrees. Mm -hmm. And that is, that is a knife through my heart. Mm -hmm. I know these people. I love these people. I know this field. I love this field. And, and that is a death knell. I, I, it's just, it's, it's to me, it's the opposite of what we need to be doing right now to serve families with young children. Mm -hmm. When you talk about the trade school approach, what came to mind right now was, and, and these degree requirements, um, all of the Coursera ads that are, you know, spend six months on this class and you can work yeah. for Google, right? Yeah. And 
we don't have any kind of exactly like you were saying, Heather, paid apprenticeships, right? You can't be paid to go to school in early childhood. You mm-hmm. get to pay and then repay your student loans for <laughs> a thousand years on, yes. you know, no salary. But if we're looking at professionalism as forcing it on the individual rather than bringing the field up with the individual, I think we're missing the point. I think there is a way we could do this. We could put actual funding into early childhood education instead of saying all lead teachers will be required to have bachelor's degrees. It's here are the scholarships we're offering to get mm-hmm. your lead teacher's bachelor's degree. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and, and here is a, you know, like when I was in Vermont, I'm, I'm sorry, Liz, I'm just aware that I interrupted you. No, no, go ahead. Okay. So I moved to Connecticut from Vermont and there, there was, um, it wasn't the best thing in the world, but it was something, it was a career <laughs> ladder. And mm-hmm. so you weren't required to have the bachelor's degree, but if you were, if I, as a director was running a program that participated in the stars program so that we could get funding, mm-hmm. we had to prepare a budget that offered staff a, a, a bit more of a raise once they got their bachelor's degree. Mm-hmm. So there was incentive for both the student and the program um, to, to promote higher learning. But that's really different than where I'm at now, where it's saying it's required and that most of my students right now who cannot afford bachelor's degrees will never be a lead teacher, mm-hmm. even though they're completely qualified to do so. Mm-hmm. Where is this center funding coming from to have higher rates for teachers <laughs> who have bachelor's degrees? Because um, as a person, as a center director right now. <laughs> it's it, your you QRIS, right? Yeah. yeah. possible, but nobody's giving us the money to do that. Mm-hmm. Right. No, yeah. that, that was the issue when I was a director in Vermont is that I had to I had to watch that budget to the penny and I had to work with my board of directors every time. Well, okay, this coming quarter, so-and-so is going to complete her bachelor's degree. Okay, where are we going to take that money away from so that you can give her the other 10 cents an hour? Um, okay, well, we'll buy less paint. That's the, <laughs> to me, that's the re, uh, one reality we're living in in our field. Mm-hmm. It's insanity. But at least I'd rather have it as encouragement than requirement. Yeah. And I, I know that this is sort of idealistic and, and, and not real world, but honestly, I, um, you can tell a difference sometimes in students who are there because they want to know more and get the degree and those who have been told that they have to, to keep their jobs. And, um, so the learning is, is different even then, uh, you know, or, um, you know, like I, I was in the work for 20 years before I finally had an opportunity to go back. And that was only because of a scholarship and support from the place I worked. And, um, honestly, a lot of what I then learned when I went back was like, because I had been reading on my own and, and was one of those cliched lifelong learners or whatever. Um, what they were teaching me was like 10 years behind what I'd been reading. So, um, it, you know, it's just not a guarantee. And it, what it, what it is, is it is that, that regulatory gaze that was in the title of this article. It's someone else looking in and saying, I don't see you as professional. So I'm going to impose this on you instead of, um, you know, listening to the voices of the people doing the work. (laughs) 
um, and, and, and working that way or letting us define for ourselves, um, you know, an ideal definition of what it means to be a professional. Well, we rail against standardization yeah. of uh, measurable outcomes for young children. Yeah. And I feel like we're, we're talking about the same thing, standardization of outcomes for the adults yeah. in early childhood. And it's just as inappropriate uh, and unrealistic and not mirroring humanity mm-hmm. for the adults as for the children in our world. Yeah. Can I argue with you for a minute, Richard? Yes, please. Okay. So measurable standards for young children are broadly speaking harder it's harder to link them to the quality of their education it's harder to link them to the quality it's because of the way young children are learning information the measurable results are not anywhere near the full picture i think for adults though we have better ways to assess quality teaching they're not perfect by any means but i do think that with or without a degree there are ways to assess when you have a good teacher, when you have a good director. And I think that looking at those standards independent of the piece of paper that they may or may not hold is important. I think setting standards, setting measurable standards is important to professionalizing the field. I think we just need to be able to have a really strong voice as to what those look like. Mm-hmm. I think being able to link theory to practice, being able to observe children appropriately, being able to interact appropriately yeah. in a positive way and build those relationships. Yep. They're all important and they're all measurable. Yep. And yeah. you, you can take classes on them, but you also have to have the disposition to want to take the classes and want to learn and right. be and grow. Yeah. When I, when I was a director, um, honestly, most of the time, the teachers that I saw doing the best work and and really uh, hitting some of those standards you described, Liz, were the ones who started the work and then went back to school. The ones who came in with degrees already, um, it was more difficult for them to sort of uh, see the culture of the center and see how, you know, they came in with their, most of the training is very um most of my college training was very much just about activity planning and um, uh, management kinds of strategies and those things. And, you know, there was nothing about play. There was nothing about care. There was nothing about um, uh, relationships in the way we see it now, the way we're talking about it now. Um, it was very much a program to get a piece of paper to show that I could control a classroom <laughs> and, and not as much about showing that I really understood what children. So, so, and I saw that with, with teachers that would come in and work in the center. Um, you know, again, I'm not, I'm not against people getting degrees. I, I wish I had more of them in my, <laughs> in my school trying to right. get their degrees. Um, but that's because I have confidence in the kind of teaching they're going to see and be part of when they, when they come to my school. Right. Mm-hmm. And Liz, I agree with you. Everything you just said, I'm not against uh, measuring quality. Uh, I'm against requiring uh, higher ed degrees as a measurement indicator. Um, and I also, you know, Heather, as you just listed off just a few things there that you think we're missing, what I, what I, uh, the society that we're in, I think would call those 
soft, soft skills. skills. Yes, absolutely. Right? Mm-hmm. right. Which we know are uh, relegated historically, traditionally, culturally to the world of females. Mm-hmm. And so quantitative standardized quantitative measurements to me are uh, deeply patriarchal mm-hmm. in their in their foundational um, purposes. Um, and, you know, the other thing it links to for me that I've said in past podcasts is I, I really think that in the same way that I think a trade school experience is better than textbooks and, and memorizing and being tested on information, um, I think of, I've come to think of our field over 40 years as more of an art than a science. Yeah. And so for me, um, although this is very difficult to measure equitably, um, I would prefer qualitative measurements over quantitative mm-hmm. measurements. But that takes more time and it's harder. Yep. It's possible, but it's, it's harder. And um, so uh, we just, we just finished our accreditation review visit um, hey, at the college. Yeah. Yay. Yay. I'm so glad to be done. Really. It feels, whew, what a year mm-hmm. anyway. <laughs> Um, and I, you know, as I was looking through the standards, part of that process is I have to be able to look at 12 criteria and, um, uh, seven areas of professional standards and demonstrate, you know, provide documentation artifacts, um, or, or interviews that show that students leaving our program are able to do all those things. Mm-hmm. And, um, I, I worked on, you know, I'm, I'm one college, the, the college I work for, I'm one campus, and there are, I think, nine or 10 others around the state, and they all really wanted to focus on, uh, on being standardized in what we submitted even and what we, we said, but you can, you can play with those standards more than you think you can, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. So, so, so standards that we use to measure quality are not all automatically bad or wrong. Um, it's when we think there's only one way to meet that standard that it becomes for me, at least more about the, the regulatory gaze and the, um, uh, patriarchal kinds of constructs that feed what we're, what we're told we need to do. Right. It's about asking the, answering the right question. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's close to the right question that's being asked. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And, And I think that's what onlookers to our field are relatively bad at. They're not asking the right questions Mm -hmm. of us and as individual practitioners or of the field as a whole. Yeah. And I think it's on us then to say, wait, wait, this is what you should be asking. This is how we know that we're doing it. Yeah. Because I mean, the dirty secret that we all know is there are really bad programs out there. Yeah. Yeah, and that's true. It, but, but, you know, it's like, and this is, I think, just supports what you're saying. I think, Liz, um, it's like that, that prospective parent who calls and says, are you a daycare or do kids learn anything? And we all get uptight. And that came up in a recording yesterday. We all get so uptight about that. But what else do they know to ask, right? That's, that's what they've been marketed, programmed, uh, socialized to think is important. So it's the same thing with all these regulatory bodies and decision makers. Um, and you're right, we have to be the ones saying, here's what, here's how we, here's how we do all those things that you think are important here. Here's how we are 
professional <laughs> when also, we're here's what's actually important yes Cliff, uh, yeah your questions as a yeah. starting point and shift yeah. a little bit yeah absolutely what is the starting point specifically what word you said so oh, the questions that are coming in from the outside to try to measure existing quality that are not asked by early childhood people right so we take those and say okay so i hear your intention this is really what we're looking for, uh-huh. and this is how we measure it. Yeah. So their right. intention is the starting point that you were. The sorting. intention is the one. Got right. it. Got it. Yeah. And you know, Heather, I, I'm glad you're done with your accreditation. Me too. And so are all the people in my life who are sick of hearing about it. Right. <laughs> I was where you are a year ago, so you yeah. have my total empathy. Yeah. It's a nightmare. And now here's. I'm sorry to be the bearer of bad news, but here's what you have ahead of you. Yeah. But this fall, sometime you'll get your report back. Oh. Right. End of this semester. Good luck with that. Yep, yep. And and um, what you'll find is that those reviewers who visited you are also deeply standardized yeah. and trained to be as as uh, objective as a knife's edge. Yeah. And there's no room for intention, for um, any kind of the soft skills. You either did you Heather and your college either did X or it did not. Mm-hmm. There's no spectrum. There's just, they did it or they don't. Right. So now I'm in a place where this coming September, these are the four things I didn't do exactly right. the way. It's the only way they're allowed to view my work. Uh-huh. Even though they interview me, they get to understand my thinking, why I did what I did. If I didn't structure it that way, it's, that's an X. So now for this September for me, I've got to go fix all yeah. my Xs, yeah. which is fine. And it reminds me of back in the day when I was using the class observation tool mm-hmm. with another partner and we had to do um, uh, and, and ensure inter-rater reliability right. and all that. Um, there's no room for um, intuition, uh, a sense of things. There's just, you know, and even then, and even that to me was quite foolish because the amount of time the other Raider and I would spend trying to get to consensus when we're two very different human beings, mm-hmm. it was, was foolishness Yeah, when we could both see anecdotally that the program was doing such and such. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I'm sorry. You see, I have a lot of energy around this topic. It's yeah. Well, I, I think, I mean, I, I'm not going to argue with that because I haven't done the class inter rater reliability. I did Eckers and Itters a long time ago and had to do that, same that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but I, I've looked at the, we'll use class for an example, uh, uh, because it seems to be a common popular tool. Um, and I, I've, I've read it and thought, this is great. Yeah. But then I've seen so many different people use it. Right. And, and so, so it's just another testament that you can't standardize, even when you've right. got a checklist that should be standardizing, you can't because humanity is not standardized. Right. Look at our licensing regulations. They differ by state, even within a state, yeah. you can get a good rep or a bad rep or anyone in between. And you're, even though you're doing the same program, your results will be completely different yeah. because you have fallible, sub- subjective human beings on all sides of it, rating yeah. you. Yeah. If I'm lucky enough to have a great licensing regulator, I can work with her and we can discuss it and she can make a notation. And if I'm working with a bad one, it's, it's like mm-hmm. our credit, higher ed accreditation X. Yeah. Yeah. There's, 
So uh, to me, it's just a foolish pursuit to try to pursue standardization, even though I understand the logic of what Liz is saying, that theoretically there's value for it, of it. But, you know, as Liz said in the beginning, we're looking at two different worlds. In the real world of early childhood education, uh, it, it's, it's, it doesn't match up with our ideals for best practice. Yeah. So, so let's shift and talk about how we would define professionalism. What do we think is important? Um, no tattoos, no piercings. Right. Yeah. Besides that, that's a given, right? Oh, okay. Right. <laughs> I'll show you mine, but all right. <laughs> I just tried to set up a new one and my guy's booked till August. So oh, I don't, I don't get a new tattoo. A tattoo. tattoo a, yes. Okay. No, no. Anyway. So yeah, let's talk about what we think is important. So for the last 30 years, I've done a workshop on early childhood professionalism mm -hmm. called Standing for Children. And like everything I do, it's a facilitated discussion. And I turn it over to the audience and say, so how do you define professionalism? And it's been interesting to listen to early childhood people give their answers. It's yeah. much about what we've talked about, the way you dress, how you interact with your coworkers, how you interact with parents. Are you, you providing in on time? All the things we think of. <laughs> yeah. But when you can have a discussion about it where people can all, especially when I'm working with one program and a director and they can all say together, okay, here's what we mean by dress or by development appropriate. Then they can move forward with that, with a common understanding. But when you're trying to apply that, when a higher power who, who doesn't know you is trying to apply that to you and everyone else, it's, it's to me, it's doomed for failure hmm. because of diverse human beings. Sure. What do you think, Liz? I think professionalism, obviously, as we've kind of covered, is broader than that. But there's a phrase that's coming to mind, and I'm trying very hard to not mangle it. But it's <laughs> it's knowing and understanding that our profession has a specific body of knowledge, mm -hmm. and working from that body of knowledge. Mm -hmm. yes. So you're right; it is harder to standardize that in some ways. And honestly, when we got off on the how to measure a tangent, all I, I had this fantasy world where I got to sit in classrooms and just write a running record observation all day right. and then yes. talk to the teacher at the end of the day. Yeah. Uh, yes, love that. Yes. But I, I think, I mean, there's a lot of merit to having warm relationships with your, with the families and the children and, you know, seeing them as true partners. And there's mm -hmm. a lot of merit in working and having positive relationships with your colleagues um, and oh dear God, as center director, please, it is wonderful when you can arrive on time. Most <laughs> <Yeah>. of the time. <laughs> so I'm not in three classrooms. Yeah. Um, but I think that that's missing the mark if we're talking about professionalism. I think we really need to examine what we as early childhood practitioners know and should be able to put into practice. Mm -hmm. And again, I'm going to kind of hit on this deficit this mismatch between degrees and experience mm -hmm. and there's a lot that can come from a very well-structured academic program for adults not children uh, <laughs> yeah just so we're clear <laughs> but like heather was saying like you were saying richard that experience of being with the children and then having then going on to bring the theory to the practice 
is what can professionalize us as a field. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I'm hearing you talk about experiential learning. Yes. Yeah. Which, which would be the ideal, right? And for me, that's how I started out, right? I was taking my classes while I was teaching preschool. And so everything I learned, I could apply right there the next day or whatever, mm -hmm. match it up. And what I learned by having that, the books and the real life experience combined was immeasurable. Um, but not everyone has that. And mm -hmm. it's not what our field requires. Yeah. I think there's a degree for <coughs> me um, of humility required in, in what I think of as professionalism um, in the individual. And I think part of it is understanding that you're not going to always know everything. And, um, and so, so humility and curiosity, I guess, are two things that I really value and would call professional qualities, but again, harder to measure than, um, are your tattoos covered? And do you have a, did you get your 12 hours of in-service this year? Um, but in at UIC, um, um, uh, not, I want to say addresses, but they put that out there under the term lifelong learner. Right. Yeah. Um, uh, oh, where was I going with that? I just think, you know, I, I talk a lot about teacher ego and um, teacher identity being reasons that we aren't curious. Um, and I feel like part of this push for professionalization, specifically talking about degrees, is because we feel a need to be um, seen as good as or um, to be real teachers or whatever. And I don't want to devalue that, but, um, but there's lots of ways you can do that. There's lots of ways that you can um, advocate for yourself and still have that sort of understanding that you will never know everything. Um, you should never stop learning and everything you do throughout that time when you're with the children should be based on what you know about those children and about typical child development. And, um, uh, you know, if I, if I come in and say, okay, so tell me why you, you, did this thing this morning and they should be able to talk to me about how it impacted the children and their development and not, um, uh, you know, because it was on the lesson plan as an only answer or because, uh, this is what I always do or, because um, I found it on Pinterest and because it was, I found it on Pinterest and it was cute, those kinds of things. Um, but a lot of those kinds of things look very academic sometimes, and then it feels more professional. Um, so, so I just think it's, it's deep and it's not measurable. <laughs> you know, it's not easily measurable sometimes. You know, I think about process versus product. Always, right. right. Absolutely. And so if we revere child development and we know that a two-year-old is not an unfinished three-year-old, right? A two-year-old is fat, perfect where they are and a three-year-old is perfect where they are. Mm -hmm. And we revere the concept of development, but then we get nervous when we apply it to professional development mm -hmm. right we want everyone to know oh am i frozen nope keep going okay uh, you all were frozen for <laughs> no. me um so but then when we all of a sudden when we're adults we all have to be at the same place yeah or measured against the same place i also know there was a director that that is a bit pie in the sky or is problematic because on one hand i want my staff i want to respect my staff wherever they're at 
developmentally in terms uh -huh. of the professional development. I want to scaffold them to the next thing. Mm -hmm. And I also need to be accountable to the parents and the board that I'm providing a center of excellence while I do that. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm not sure it's possible to meet both of those goals mm -hmm. fully at the same time. So, uh, you know, I, I know that I have people who are on their journey of professionalism an employee handbook that reminds them of the 70 things they need to do to be considered professional. Yeah. Right. Well, could be helpful for someone who's further along, but out of the reach of someone who's new to the field and right. wondering if this is the right place for them. Mm -hmm. And I just think we need to make room for all of those people. Yeah. Somehow. Well, start writing up your plan for how to do that. <laughs> Listen, I will and review other, it against yeah. our checklists. Right. The other point I throw out there, and Liz, I'm happy to be quiet if you've got something you want to throw in. No, okay. I keep talking. All right. Well, so I mentioned patriarchy earlier and the, how this whole conversation to me of defined professionalism and measuring adults against it um, is patriarchal in nature. Mm -hmm. um, I got to, you know, me, I got to add yet another uh, lens through which to look at this conversation and to just say, we are three white people having this right. conversation. And, whoop, did we make, did we mess up there again? <laughs> nope, oh. you're going. <laughs> I heard a weird sound. Um, we are three white people having this conversation. And, you know, it's only been recent in recent years for me as a white male, really um, getting past my fears and issues with the term white supremacist culture. Right. Really sitting with it, seeing it around me, understanding how I benefit and, you know, doing whatever is in my power to fight against it. Mm -hmm. So when we talk about standardization, you know, in the, in the, through the lens of white supremacy, we talk about universalizing mm -hmm. that the goals we have for young children or for staff um, are all based on white culture. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, as, in the very beginning, Liz said, we are primarily women of color in our field. And so we all have to be very cautious about standardizing or universalizing everything um, and ensuring that, um, that those standards are not, are not founded in white culture. Mm -hmm and accommodate diverse ways of being in the world. Yeah. And I, I know that some folks will, will hear that and there's an automatic reaction to, to the phrase white supremacy because we picture hoods and intentional cruelty. Mm -hmm. um, but we don't, what it means and what I've been sort of unpacking for myself is just that, yeah, how often is what's seen as normal just what the way white people do it? And and how much of what we see of a deficit in other people, and in this case, children or staff, or things they need to change to fit, are about making it like what we are familiar with as white people. Right. And is I think professionalism about speaking a certain way. Right. Or, or dressing or looking or hair a certain way. way or yeah. Right. Hair. Hair is a huge topic to discuss. How do we define professional hair? Probably mm -hmm. through a white lens. Yeah. Right? Yeah. There, there's so many ways that, that this professionalism concept uh, can get uh, really, um, you know, off target mm -hmm. uh, if we're not aware of the people in our field and how, who's created those definitions. Mm -hmm. One where I see it the most is actually, I think a little bit more subtle is 
the self-care expectations for children, teaching yeah. about autonomy, yeah. there is such huge cultural variability. And yeah. if we're saying that the kids in your class need to be, you know, they're three years old, they need to be feeding themselves, they need to be cleaning up after themselves, they need to do X, Y, Z. There are so many places around the world that that's, they're three-year-olds, they're babies. I, I will feed <laughs> right. them. Right. You know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and we need to be mindful of that when we're looking at those standards. I know they're in the California standards. I know they're in the Indiana standards. Sorry, Richard, I'm not familiar enough with Connecticut and Vermont, but... <laughs> Yeah. but they're present and their expectations for educators who come from all kinds of different backgrounds. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's a lot of expectations of independence that don't fit everyone's right. culture. Yeah. So you're saying Liz, that um, in terms of the word professionalism, that's related to how we view the professionalism of an adult who is either um, moving children toward that independence or not. I think it's, I mean, even a step back, I mean, possibly okay. how we be the professionalism of the adult, but how we invite all adults to participate in this system. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if they're even opting out of being part of this because that's so opposed to their own values mm-hmm. that they, they right. can't work in, you know, group childcare if the expectation is all of these babies have to feed themselves. That's unreasonable. <laughs> that's cool. Right. You know? right. It's, it's well, who we're pushing I, back. Yes. I'll just throw in another, yeah. yet another layer, which is <laughs> which I'm also becoming present to in recent years, which is neurodivergence. Right. And really understanding what that means, how it shows up in our society, how we've never talked about it in my lifetime, you know, um, outwardly without taboo until just a few years ago. And I am highly aware of the growing numbers of um, of my community college students who self-identify as neurodivergent and uh, have very different ways of expressing and processing emotions, which is one of those sort of soft skills you identified earlier. And how are they gonna be reviewed as a professional uh, if their way of being in the world doesn't match the neurotypical uh, definitions of professionalism? And if we talk about that policy book, that employee handbook or whatever, we look at things like being measured on collegiality and cooperation and initiative and those kinds of things. Um, we define them in a very neurotypical way. We don't, we don't make enough allowances. We're not aware enough. A lot of times I know I'm still of course learning about it, um, to allow for, those equally valid, but very different ways of being part of a team or being um, expressing your ideas or working with others. And, you know, some of those, some of my students, I, 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 I'm concerned that it's going to be very challenging for them to get bachelor's degrees. Mm. You know, they're already getting their associates is a challenge, but now that my state has, has set the bar at bachelor's degrees, what does that mean for my neurodivergent students? Mm-hmm. Um, what are they going to do? Mm-hmm. I don't know. Right? <laughs> what's, my, what's my Connecticut early childhood field going to look like in five years when we don't have people in it yeah. because they've been turned away or can't meet the standards? Mm-hmm. And also then, you know, the standards are different in every state for, for yep. what we're defining as professional. Like I think about Indiana where to operate a, a licensed family child care home, you, your CDA is the minimum requirement, 
qualification and um, to be a lead teacher in a center that's only licensed, you only need a CDA, but then if it's part of past quality or, or credited, then you need different, different standards or I think paths to quality, our rating system, quality rating system says even you only have to have 50% of your whole staff with a CDA or higher, you know, stuff like that. So it's, it's just, it's silly to think that we can legis- legislate or regulate into um, that sort of standardized. Um, and then to the outside looking in, it just gets worse for us because people see we're not meeting these minimum requirements yeah. that, you know, are you people won't necessarily see the barriers to them yeah. and say, oh, well, early childhood is clearly just failing our children. We need <laughs> to bring them into this, you know, other field or yeah. do something else for our children that's not funding the existing mm-hmm. early childhood system. Yeah. You know, I'm thinking, also thinking back again of my time as a director and the center I arrived at in 2017, 18, um, some of their, in their handbook, their regulations for professionalism was, uh, you know, may not be on your cell phone. And if you are, <laughs> you'll, once you'll be written up twice and three yeah. times you'll be, you'll be terminated from your position. Yeah. Um, you may not wear a shirt that shows your, uh, midsection, um, or your cleavage or your cleavage. Um, and your shorts have to be down to a certain number of inches from your knee. Mm-hmm. And I got there and I said to my staff, you know, let's, let's talk about why being on your cell phone is not a good thing. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about some of the ways being on it can be really helpful to you. Mm-hmm. And so I'm lifting that rule. I'm trusting you. And as we move forward, if I learn that you've broken that trust, then we'll, we'll, we'll handle that when yeah. we get there. But it's yeah. silly to have one rule for all, because by saying no cell phones, it precludes your ability to use that amazing app that lets you and a kid identify the name of a flower. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? No, no, that's fine. And then I had this one young woman who just had very little fabric on her body every day. <laughs> you know, she runs hot like my yeah. husband. This is always yeah. hot. And my assistant director, who was a male, made him very concerned. I just think she's very unprofessional in what she shows. Well, she's here for eight hours a day. Maybe there's a man who comes in in the first five minutes of the day in the last five minutes. And I'd rather work on her on how to handle an inappropriate um, interaction with a dad than prohibit her from wearing whatever she feels comfortable wearing. Yeah. Yeah. That's um, this reminds me of what, what Lisa Murphy says a lot um, about policy is that it doesn't need to be a policy. It needs to be a conversation um, when, when things like that happen. Um, So when, when the, um, when the tattoo article came out a few years ago, I was working um, uh, at Purdue and part of their clinical faculty. And we, um, we used that as a starting point to re re examine our dress codes. And um, I think we just started taking it. We looked at it line by line the clinical dress code for the the grad students and the supervisors um, and everything we could come every, every line we saw would, we'd be like, well, that's, that's classist. <laughs> you know, that one's a weight discrimination. That one's uh, right. uh that one's racist and blatantly sexist. <laughs> and, and we just eventually ended up pretty much with the skeleton that just, we just decided, you know, it's just like a, a general statement that if there's anything about you, the way you dress, um, that interferes with your ability to, to do the thing 
then we will talk to you about that. So, you know, in that, you know, like conversations about long fingernails or whatever, um, you know, let's not assume that they can't still do those things or that they would be perceived as unprofessional. You know, we got clients who come in with long fingernails who, who like to see someone that, that looks like them or they connect in that way. So, so that's where we sort of landed too, was just, if there's a problem, let's just talk about the specific problem and the situation we're seeing it in and not just assume that no one can be trusted to do this right. Unless we have it all written out and laid out for you. Right. And in terms of classism and clothes, just as one example, you know, the people who make these standards to me are so disconnected from uh, the reality, the real life people who are working in our fields. Mm -hmm. And they set the standard of a bachelor's degree or whatever, without really understanding the reality of who's in our field. Yeah. And in my center, although I, I loved it and I'm proud of it and did everything I could with every penny in the budget, there was a good number of my teachers who were on food stamps mm -hmm. and on WIC. Mm -hmm. And they were lucky if, the, if they could get some clothes from Goodwill, that was, a, that was good. And if someone threw up on them or had a blowout, mm -hmm. um, that was problematic because they didn't have money for a change of clothes. Um, right. and, my, and, and if someone walks in and says they're unprofessional because their clothing is stained or doesn't fit right. Um, I'm sorry, I'm going to use a Heather Burnt Santee technical term, but fuck off because... <laughs> You know, they're doing the best they can. And that is not what we should be focusing on mm -hmm. right now. Yeah, I've, I've um, trademarked that. So you need to pay me for the use of that. Yes. All right. No. Yeah. I'll um, give you some money after the show. Okay, thanks. Ooh, my new office chair just fell apart. <laughs> I just almost fell out. Shit. Um, anyway, there was something very uh, professional and important that I was going to say. And now I don't remember. What were you just talking about, Richard? Well, I'm wondering what Liz is thinking. Oh, yeah. I'm aware that I'm a guy and I'm monopolizing again, and I'm sorry. Oh, no, I see. I feel I'm, I'm just in full agreement with you at the moment. So I'll <laughs> let you know when I disagree. But, yeah. Uh, you're right on. It's well, true. say more about agreeing. That's so rare for you. I enjoy hearing <laughs> it. What specifically do you agree with and why right. do you think it's brilliant? Tell me more. <laughs> right. It is an interesting. I, I worked. My very first early childhood job, I made $8.77 an hour and needed to buy an entirely new wardrobe because I did not have pants in the specific colors that were required yeah. of me. And that was rough. Yeah. I mean, that's. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, you know, I worked for an agency where you had to, all the classroom teachers had to wear um, scrub tops mm -hmm. in a very specific color. There were two approved colors and two approved styles. And, um, a lot, so many of our teachers in all of the centers were um, low income and many of them were single parents and um, they could only maybe afford one or two and they didn't all have access to laundry, you know, facilities. Right. All of that stuff is, is relevant and doesn't take a thing away from their ability to be professional when they are with the children and in the, in the classroom. But, you know, the intent was to set them apart as as professionals. And so someone who came in would know who's the staff and who's the visiting parent or something. Um, and it was just, you know, then there was a whole thing about leggings and can they wear leggings as, as pants. And um, the only ones who were written up were the ones who um, were maybe heavier than the, the evaluators wanted them to be, you know, it just, there's all kinds of, of silliness um, tied to dress code. 
Uh, and then it takes our focus away from the the stuff we've we've talked about as being truly a, a professional kind of behavior in the workplace. Yeah. And, you know, you began by saying, Heather, um, you know, about all of these things you just listed and how they in no way reflect on a person's ability to be professional mm -hmm. with a group of young children. Right? Mm -hmm. And so then that led my mind back to what Liz said earlier when, when, when we just started to kind of maybe try to define professionalism at the very beginning of this conversation yeah. in a more long, long ago. Uh -huh. And Liz said, you know, we have a common body of knowledge. And um, if we were to use that to define what it means to be a professional, um, we wouldn't even be having a conversation about leggings. Mm -hmm. They're, mm -hmm. they're not even relevant. They're nowhere in what we should be using to determine it. Yeah. Yep. I don't know. I, I think if I had to nutshell it, the idea of professionalism, I would say, can you explain to me your rationale? <laughs> like for all the things you're doing, if I came in and said, tell me, tell me why that was, why that happened or what, you, what you're doing that for, or what your goal is. And if they're able to answer that for me, even if it's a, an answer I wouldn't choose, then we can keep that conversation going. And if they're open to that, then um, for me, that's what it's, that's what it's about. Or do we put it the determinator on the children in the room? Like, mm. are the children in your room thriving? Yeah. And here are 20 indicators that let us know that children are thriving or not. Mm -hmm. And we know that not all children, all 20 will be thriving at the same time. Mm -hmm. So we go in knowing that. Sure. And then if, if there's issues around any of the criteria for children thriving, for which the teacher is responsible for, mm -hmm. then there's an opportunity to help that teacher grow in those areas. Yeah. So who's, who's developing the definition of thriving? Is it you and Liz? Me and Liz. Okay, perfect. <laughs> hey, now we're back though to Richard, what you were saying about the teachers who are on their own professional trajectories and maybe aren't where we all want them to be and aren't providing the experiences for children that we want those children to have, you know, or at least consistently and finding some, hmm, some way to help those teachers grow and specifically want to grow, right? Mm -hmm. We're not coming in and telling them, well, this was wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong, yeah. but I, I like the way you reframe that off as evidenced by the children, mm -hmm. right? This idea that the children are growing and thriving based off of what their teachers are doing with them and alongside them. And how do we <laughs> keep that improving without measurable standards? <laughs> you need to have measurable standards. Right. Mm -hmm. I think we're in agreement on that. It's just what's being measured. Yeah. In terms of professionalism. Right. Like I know that if someone has five tattoos, uh, the children will if they know if they have that body of knowledge, uh, the children will thrive just as much as if they're in a room with someone who has no tattoos and no piercings. Mm -hmm. They're irrelevant to children thriving, which is the the ultimate goal of our our field. So mm -hmm. why are we focusing on things that are not relevant to children thriving? Mm hmm. Sure. Good question. I'm afraid that the definition of professionalism, so as you know, we get these trickling down and watered down policies from the elementary schools that our colleagues in the kindergarten and first grade have been dealing with for the last 30 years as well. Mm 
I don't know from what I have heard, the focus on professionalism hasn't been the tattoos and the piercings and the hair as much. I'm sure it's in there somewhere, but it's been the measurable academic outcomes for the children. Mm. Right. Right. And if we, as professionals are looking at appropriate bodies of knowledge and we're looking at appropriate growth and development and scaffolding, as opposed to just pouring in that knowledge mm-hmm. and making sure that's what comes out the other side. Um, it's, sorry, I halfway lost my train of thought. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think we're missing the focus of that body of knowledge if we're continuing to look at the dress code and the tattoos and the piercings. Mm-hmm. But I think those yeah. are critical starting points. And I think that that's less of what we're up against right now with the elementary school standardization that's happening to our field. Mm-hmm. Well, I agree 100% with what you said. And I would just say that I, to me, what I heard you just talk about, Liz, was not about teacher professionalism at the elementary school level or otherwise. It was about how, how teacher effectiveness is defined by the powers that be by utilizing children's academic outcomes. Mm-hmm. But those same teachers work for some place, some district, some program, whatever. And I have no doubt that besides the academic expectations on children, there's a whole other set called professionalism that those teachers are required to and are being evaluated on. Mm -hmm. You know, and what I take from this conversation, among other things, is it's hard to focus on professionalism just like so many podcasts we do, because everything is so deeply interrelated and interconnected. <laughs> yeah. It's hard to pull one out and just focus on that. We end up talking about so many other things. Mm-hmm. That's the, to me, that's one of the glorious things about our field. Yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. Um, <laughs> but this has been... Um, We've been doing this for an hour, so I've got to wrap it up. Even okay. though I know Richard, you wanted to come in and do a seven episode series yes, in one long seven hour recording this. session. No? I can't do that today. Oh, all right. Yeah. Just so. leave the camera running and leave the room and Liz and I'll keep talking. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, thank you both. This was, I knew it would be a good conversation. Um, and I knew that you would both bring elements that I hadn't thought about. So those, so thank you for that. Um, Richard, you want to plug your website? No, that's okay. Keep going. Let's plug Liz. Liz. Do you have anything you want Let's to say plug? something great about Liz. Yeah. Liz is great. She's, I wish she's I had doing a cool something thing to do. I you what? I wish I had a cool thing to plug. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> Sorry. All right. Well, you've made fine. an amazing human being who's so cute. That's oh, true. Not something I've ever done. It's not on my resume. <laughs> He is, um, he is pretty cool. Uh, but pictures anyway, appear that he's very cool. I will take your word for it, Liz, that as a human in real life, he is also cool. <laughs> okay. Well, I better do this. Thank you both. And thank you everybody for listening to another episode. We'll be back next week. Goodbye. Bye. Bye. That's the show. Now go get your nerd on. has been an Explorations Early Learning Upstairs Studio production. Oh.